someone uh, want to welcome if you're at home want to welcome you to bethany united methodist church we're glad you're worshiping with us uh this morning and those of you at home may be able to see more than those of you in the room if the camera gets fairly close i've got a little uh, ding here on my forehead and so uh we're in the middle of moving and uh as i was breaking some of the computer stuff down i leaned down to do something and whacked my head on the bookcase so then i was really careful right step back got underneath it and did it and then i stood up and whacked the back of my head on it so you know you hear you hear these phrases sometimes about well you know they get you coming and going and i'm just doing it all i'm getting myself coming and going so uh so anyway it, that, that's if you notice that that's it's nothing to get worried about uh, and, and we're continuing this series about supernatural we've been talking on this um for several weeks now and, and this week we're going to be talking about shaken and stirred, uh, being shaken or stirred. And, and I, I suspect when I say that, most of you go to a certain place with it. Uh, just a drink. A martini. Shaken, not stirred. Shall I have a vodka martini center? Shaken, not stirred. Miss Kennedy, would you get me a medium dry vodka martini? What shaken, I... not stirred. Vodka martini. Shaken, not stirred. Vodka martini. Shaken, not stirred. Can I get you something, sir? Vodka martini. Shaken, not stirred. Now, actually, that, that phrase occurs in every James Bond movie. It's in every one. It really, really does. And there's a guy that's written a book about all this kind of analyzing all, you know, the, you know, the theology, if you will, behind James Bond. I, that may be the wrong word to use. But anyway, uh, but, but I, 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 I don't drink martinis, so I consulted my, my resident expert, my son, and, uh, who does drink martinis. And, and, and I said, so, you know, what do I need to know about this? And he said, well, first off, you should know that if it's got vodka in it, it's not really a martini. You know, a martini is made with gin not with vodka, sorry, James. Uh, but, but, you know, a real martini is made with gin and not vodka. And, and a real martini is always stirred and not shaken because when you shake it, it breaks the ice up and that dilutes the taste of the botanicals in the gin. I don't know what that means, do you? I, I, I don't drink it, so I don't know. But, but he, he assures me that, that that really is just basically watering down your drink. And so no one that's really serious about drinking a martini is going to do that. So you stir it so that you get to enjoy all the flavors of the botanicals in the gin. And, and I'm going, okay, um, great. But, but the point being that, that when you shake it up like that, when you're shaken by an experience or whatever, it, it rounds you a little bit. But, but in this case, it's also just kind of diluted by the rest of your experience and you don't go anywhere with it. But to be stirred is to enter into all the richness and enjoyment and glory of it and to be moved forward. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask you uh, to be with us this morning and uh, come and open our minds, our hearts, our spirits to what you want to say to us today. Uh, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I kind of want to walk you through Luke 9, some of the, we've been reading in this for several weeks, I just kind of want to walk you through the rhythm of it a little bit. It begins with uh, Jesus charged to his disciples, he called the twelve together, gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, cure diseases, and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. The charge that he, he gives to them, the charge that he gives to us still, to go out and, and proclaim the kingdom, uh, 
heal the sick, drive out demons, uh, cure diseases, all those things. And, and, and they go out and they do these things. They come back and they're, they're, they're overwhelmed with what they've seen the kingdom of God doing, the power of God doing. They share those stories and, and they, they want to have, a, Jesus wants to have a little time away with them. And so he invites them to go somewhere. The crowds follow him. Uh, they end up finding them where they've gone kind of to retreat. And Jesus ends up again teaching and healing. And, and, and as the day goes on, and he continues to teach and heal. The people begin to get hungry. The disciples come to him and say, Master, it's late in the day. Send them away to find something to eat. And he tells them, you give them something to eat. And, and so they don't know how this is going to happen. He has them sit down. He takes the loaves and fishes, blesses them, feeds them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. In other words, enough to feed all 12 tribes of Israel. So he does this mighty work. After, on top of all these individual miracles, now he does this mighty work with this crowd, which numbers in the tens of thousands probably. Uh, he does this great work of feeding with just a few items, and there's actually all this food left over, and this amazing work happens. Right after that, he begins to question them about, who, what do people say about me? You know, what are people saying? And, and then after they say, well, you know, some say you're Elijah, and others say you're Jeremiah, you know, and so then, then he turns and he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. This pattern of, of miracle and proclamation, of great work and proclamation, this is the pattern of the early church. For the first 300 years or so of the early church's history, this is how it will work. Great things are done, great works are done, great healing takes place, and, and it's done in the name of Christ, and then Christ is proclaimed as the Messiah. And that's the power of the early church. You know, sometimes today we, we go out and we do things and we, we break those apart. You know, we do, we do great works, but then we don't tell them why we're doing it, you know, because, you know, we, we kind of keep it on the down low. And, and so, you know, you, you can do a great work for someone just because you're a nice person or, or, or because you like them. I mean, but, but they don't make the connection. Or we go out and we proclaim Christ, but we proclaim it without any of the power of the kingdom. And in the early church, when, when these great works were done, that was an, an attesting to the power of the kingdom breaking in so that when the proclamation came, this is being done in the name of Christ and in the power of Christ, people understood that Jesus wasn't just another great moral teacher, but actually he had the authority of the divine behind everything he did. And that's what gave power to their witness. There's something there that we may need to recover in what we do to pull together the the ability to, to step into the kingdom and allow the kingdom to be moving in such a way that great works are accompanied always by a proclamation. Almost immediately after that, he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So now he's done this amazing thing. They've done these amazing healings. And now he's telling them, oh, hey, listen, by the way, I have to be arrested and they're going to kill me. Wait a minute. And then after three days be raised to life, which is something far beyond anything they've seen so far. And the disciples are, are probably stunned a little bit. They're not quite sure what to do with that. And, and then he continues, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's the threshold. Remember, talking about thresholds. That's the threshold they have to step over. 
to become a follower of Christ and to move forward in their faith. And, and in that place and in that moment when they're, they're sitting there thinking, do I do, I do that? And, you know, what is that going to look like? What's, what will that change? And maybe hesitant at that place, he takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Tabor. And they see him transformed with, with Moses and Elijah standing beside him. And then even though they're very sleepy, they become fully awake and they see his glory, the two men standing with him. And again, it's that, that glory, the, the presence of God, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the, the power and the presence of God breaking into our world, that filling with that glory that allows them then to step across that threshold. So all this pattern is running down through Mark, Luke 9. And now you're going to see it kind of being reinforced a little bit going forward because Right after that, another great work happens. This uh, father brings his son who's been possessed uh, by this demon for years. And, and even while he's coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father. So we see Jesus exercising authority over the demons of the world and bringing this healing to this boy. Again, after, after they've just wrestled with this and maybe taken one step, then they, he does this next great work. And then almost immediately turns around and says, listen carefully what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. While they're all amazed at the greatness of God, right? They're, they're still just standing there amazed at what he's just done. They're marveling on all that Jesus did. He turns to the disciples and says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So they're getting this message that's at once glorious and yet at one time kind of frightening and, and intimidating. And these keep coming together as he speaks to them. And they begin to argue about, well, you know, if, if this is true, who's going to be greatest? And he gives them this last little teaching. You know, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who's least among you all who is the greatest. This reminder that, you know, you're, you're going to be coming in the kingdom. And this is not about your greatness but it's about God's greatness. It's not about your power. It's about God's power. It's, it's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about, oh, that was weak. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Once again, he reminds them, and then he invites them to follow one last time as we come toward the end of the gospel of Luke's ninth chapter. As they're walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I'm going to go wherever you want to go. And what Jesus basically says to him back here is, you know, there's no place on this world that is my home. My home is in the kingdom of heaven. Everything else around here has a place to call home, but not me. And to follow me, when you say, I'll go wherever you go, that means this is what you enter into. This life where nothing in this world is finally home, but home rests in the kingdom of God. Now, now we don't really know why he decided he needed to teach this to this man. I mean, the man sounds like, okay, I'm, 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 I'm all in. I'll go wherever you go. He sounds like he's all in, and Jesus kind of has to push back on him a little and we don't know why that is scripture doesn't tell us but we we know that jesus being the one who breathes life into us we know we know that 
He knows whatever that one thing is that is holding that man back. That one thing that keeps him from stepping fully into being a follower. And so coming out of that, it raises the question, you know, what, what's holding you back? What is holding you back? I mean, I, I, I have no way of knowing what might be holding any of you back, and unless you come and tell me about it, I don't have any way of reading that, but, but Jesus does know that. So I'm just going to ask you for a moment, what, what's, keeping, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from taking that last step to being you know, fully stirred to be a follower of Christ and to move forward in your life? What, what's holding you back? And he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, there's, there's been a lot of speculation about this passage. There's several things we, we don't really know. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't really know that the man's father's even sick. So it's possible he's saying, you know, in 20 or 30 years after my dad dies, then I'll come and be your follower. That could be one understanding of that passage. Uh, the other is possible that you know, he's caring for the father while the father's actively dying, and he wants to be a good son and take care of his father. It's also possible the father's died and needs to be buried, and he wants to remain around to make sure the estate gets distributed properly. Those of you who've done those kinds of things know what that can be. <laughs> can be challenging, wants to, be, wants to make sure things are done right, that, he, that he's a good person, that he's a good son, that he's a good citizen, that he gets things done the way they need to be done. And Jesus reminds him, you know, it, it's, not, it's not so much about being good. It's not about making bad people good. It's, it's really about making dead people alive. I mean, I, he, he's been talking about this resurrection thing. He's been talking about this resurrection thing. And that's not even on your radar. All, all you're interested in is being the good son to the father that, that is dying or will die. You don't understand that we're talking about resurrection here. I mean, are, are, are we really wanting to be a follower of Jesus just so we can do you know, better right now and kind of make things easier on us? Or, or, or do we understand that this is, this is a radical call to move out of, uh, of death and, and into life in, in the here and now? To claim the gift of the kingdom now. Do we, do we understand that? And still another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, the imagery here is not always familiar to us who are not, you know, in, in an agricultural society anymore. But I'm going to remind you that, you know, when you're plowing, you, you fix a site on the far side of the field and you lock onto that and you follow that to make sure that you plow straight across the field. Because otherwise, your, your rows tend to kind of weave back and forth with the, the movement of the land and it makes it difficult to plant, it makes it difficult to harvest. So, so it's really important for you to keep your eyes fixed on where you're going so that you plow the rows straight. And Jesus' audience would have instinctively have understood that. But what he's telling them is, you know, if you want to be a follower, you have to have your eyes on me. 
There's no, no looking anywhere else. You have to keep your eyes on me. And what the man says is, I'll do that, Lord, but first, but first, but first. Yeah, what's, what's your but first? You know, what is it that you keep telling God? Well, okay, God, I'll, I'll do this for you, but first, you know, I, I, need, I need to get my kids out of school, or I need to get them all the way through college. I'll follow you, uh, but, but first I need to pay off this or to pay off that. I'll follow you, but, but first I need to get a different job or have a little more time so I'm a little more available for you. I'll, I'll follow you, but first I need to get all my personal issues in my life sorted out. I'll follow you, but, but first I need to get my marriage fixed. I'll follow you, but first I need to study the Bible more. But first I need to, to learn how to, to worship better. But first I need to learn how to sing better, whatever it is. All those great but first, excuses and rationalizations we pull up, right? Many, many years ago, uh, when I did a walk to Emmaus, the, the first talk was to talk about priorities. And they said, you know, we want you to help focus on what your priorities are in life. And so most of us think we know what they are. But, but they sat down, they said, get a piece of paper, get your pencil out. And so um, write down the things that you spend the most money on, Okay. Now, write down the things that you think about the most, that occupy your mind and imagination the most. Okay. Now, write down the things that you talk about the most with your friends. Okay. Now, no matter what you say, look at that list you just wrote down, because those are the things that are your priorities. And everybody in the room kind of went, oh... Because we talk about making God our priority. But first, we have all of those other priorities that we put in front of God. Now, Jesus teaches about this in Matthew's gospel, right? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Right? Not but first do this, but seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And the rest of it will take care of itself. So what's your, what's your but first item? I mean, what is it that, that when God calls, you keep saying, well, yeah, I'll, I'll follow you, but first I need to take care of this or that or whatever. All those reasons we find to rationalize why we don't, actually follow Christ what's your butt first so having gone through all of this with them and making it really clear that you know if you're gonna be a follower of Christ your home's got to be the kingdom and your eyes have to be focused on Christ and God's kingdom has to be your first priority no ifs ands buts that's the way it is this is what it means to be a follower and to step over that threshold and enter into that this is what it calls for then he sends out the 72 at the beginning of the 10th chapter. Now remember at the beginning of the ninth chapter, he sends out the 12. And when they come back, they bring people with them who've been amazed at what they've seen. So now he takes that group that's come back with them and he sends them out. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, 
but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. And then he reminds them, you're going to be out there healing diseases and casting out demons and proclaiming the kingdom. Go. Don't, don't just sit around and watch me. Go. Don't just passively come and sit and worship and not do anything with it. Go. Don't just be shaken by experiencing the presence of God. Be stirred in all the richness of God's grace into being a follower and taking the kingdom of God with you into the world. Hmm. So just a few questions for you. How have you experienced the call of God in your life? What kind of God, call has God placed on your life? Because believe it or not, all followers have a call placed on their lives. And what's holding you back? What is it that you need to let go of? Or what fear that holds you back do you need to repent of so that you're free to be a follower? How might putting off the deeper things of God breed death in your life? Instead of living into the resurrection, how does putting that off breed death in your life? And what, in, in all honesty, what do you really seek first? Are you just shaken by experiencing the presence of God? Are you stirred by all the richness of that to be a follower and to step into the kingdom with Christ? Let's pray. Mighty God, you, you come into the midst of this world, you put your, your hands on our hearts and, and your power in our lives. You call us to be with you in this ministry and to be part and parcel of your kingdom. And we find all the reasons why we're not able to do that. So don't simply shake us by your presence, but stir us up. Give us power, confidence, courage, hope. Fill us with all the richness of your grace and your glory that we might be those who seek you first. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.